0: Hey, anyway, Good morning, Crosspoint. Uh, good morning, indeed. My name is Justin. I serve as a pastor here to be sent out as the planting, past, planting pastor of New City Fellowship, a church plant uh, serving. That's right, my boy. That's right. Thank you. Uh, serving the uh, south central side of Orlando on the Kissimmee, Orlando border. And we meet uh, every Friday night. And so I just want to Uh, If you have an open Friday and you want to come hang out with us, that invitation stands for you. Uh, If you want to talk about church planting, Crosspoint's efforts in church planting and seeing churches planted, the vision for church planting in Orlando, I'd love to have that conversation with you. I'll be standing over at the Connections desk uh, ready to greet you and talk through it. I'm sure you all had a beautiful time with Pastor Ryan Walker last week. Yeah. I think he deserves more than that. But that's fine. That's fine. No, I love Ryan. Ryan uh was sent out from this congregation. He pastors Cross Point Church uh over on Conway, uh formerly Cross Point Downtown. And uh, you know, he's just a wonderful brother. I love when he gets to come back home and share God's word with us. We're gonna continue in our series this week. Peaks and Valleys, a series uh, exploring how we can live out our faith, encounter Jesus, experience true transformation in the highs and lows of life. It's a series that has and will continue to take on many shapes, some sermons being more thematic, uh, which is what we experienced last week and talking about lamenting and other sermons uh, like today where we will look through the text and sort of see these moments in history where God's people actually encountered literal peaks and valleys and take that truth and apply it to our Uh, peak or valley if you would. And so with that being said, are you ready to study your Bibles? Okay, cool. Me too. Why don't you meet me in Genesis chapter 22? And as you get there, I'm going to take a good bit of time to frame up our time in the text. So I I just want to get it out right now. We're going to be here a while. Um, But before I begin, I, I, I want to, I a lot of you I know, uh, and you know me, uh, others of you I don't know that well, and so I kind of want to say this in the front end. I, I come from a church tradition, a, a style of preaching that is dialogical in its nature, uh, which means that we engage in this part of the service together, Okay. There's a, 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 a reminder that you give me that this text preached is not just for you, but for my heart as well. Now, if you grew up in that context, then this is a safe place. Feel comfortable in doing that. If you have not that's fine too. Do not be anything that you are not. That's not the call here. But don't feel teased. Or don't feel pressure. That's just how we speak in the tradition. Your uh, pondering faces, your clicking pens, your note takings are just as holy, just as good to my soul as uh, those shouting back at me, um, giving me that reminder. So I just want to say that now. Okay. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to bully you. That's just how we talk. I, this is one thing. Oh, never mind. I'm going to, I was going to say something about being married and how, like, my wife bullies me, but she doesn't. But that was just not important. (laughs) Good. Our text today uh, is a story that if you've been in church for any amount of time at all, you've likely heard. But we cannot fully know the contents of this story intimately without first knowing a few things. Firstly, this story takes place inside the book of Genesis. Genesis purpose has often been misunderstood. Maybe by many of you in this room, you might have turned to Genesis to find anthropomorphic answers to questions that you might have. You might have pinned Genesis as a book merely about the beginning of all things. You might have turned to Genesis to look for answers about dinosaurs and how old the earth is and questions like that, but Genesis was never written with the intention to answer any of those questions. Genesis was written for a purpose. And that purpose is to show humanity, you and I, that all the answers you're looking for, at the heart of them, lies God and faith in him. Let me try and put it for you this way. Genesis is about God, that before was, was, God was, and he has an unyielding pursuit towards man. God, who all things come from, wants you. And when you encounter him, you develop a faith in his purpose and plans that doesn't always give you all the information you want. But this is faith. Trusting God with what you cannot tangibly, physically prove. Trusting God when you cannot see quite clearly the path forward. Trusting God to be exactly who he says he is. And this faith transforms you. That's what Genesis teaches us. If I could make it even simpler, Genesis is about knowing God And trusting him totally. When you come to the 12th chapter of Genesis, the book dials up its intensity. You meet a man named Abram. And through his story in the opening verses of chapter 12, you discover this beautiful way that God pursues us. Theologians call it the doctrine of election. This just means that God chooses us. He takes us from broken, sinful creatures, thanks to our greater grandparents, Adam and Eve, and then chooses to make us new. In Abram's story, we find that it's not really Abram's story, it's God's story of how he finds his lost children. In other words, it's not a story about man beginning a relationship with God, but God beginning a relationship with man. Abram is a very important character. Some of you have been singing about his importance since you were a child, right? Yeah, sing it with me. Father Abraham had many sons, dialogical, see, many sons had Father Abraham, I am one of them, and so are you. Now, now this part depends on how you grew up. For us, it was, now let's just praise the Lord, right hand, and then you chop like you're a Chiefs fan, right? That's how we did it back when I was a kid, and then you do left hand, and then you do right foot, and then left foot, and then next thing you know, you're like the Wiggles, But I never realized just how rich in beauty this song was, no? In God choosing Abraham, God chooses us. And he chose us to bring him praise. Pursues us. Pursues a relationship with us as he did with Abraham. See, Abraham's life shows us most clearly the point of Genesis, that faith, changes you. Allow me to make my case. After 75 years of living, God tells Abraham or Abram, uh, spoiler alert, there's a name change somewhere in the story, to pack up from his home and leave 75 years old. God tells him it's time to go. I have something different, something new for you. Could you imagine God calling you to pack up From everything you know, the place your family grew up in, the place where you met your friends, the place where all of your memories are and walk into the unknown at 75 years old. And that's just what Abraham does. Abraham most certainly has a faith in God's purpose and plan that he cannot see but trusts that he's going to be all right. Could it be family that when you live a life obedient to God's beck and call, that every day forward is not scarier, but sweeter than the day before? I'm sure Abraham was tempted to feel that in all the obscurity he sees ahead of him meant that all the beauty of his life was behind him. But that wasn't true for him and it's not true for us every day in full obedience to God is sweeter than the days before Abraham packs up and moves and they settle but now now God wants Abraham to do something else he wants him and his wife Sarah to have a baby now I know that doesn't sound crazy like yeah people have babies all the time but you have to realize that both Abraham and Sarah are physiologically past this point. Okay? But God makes a promise to them. He says, in a year, you'll have this baby. Now, now, put out of your mind modern medicine, what we know about pregnancies, all of that. But just put it out of your mind. That's not a reality at this time. Sarah, at this age, could not conceive. It's virtually impossible, and even if she were to conceive, her life would be in significant danger, but obedience follows them, and over that year, they tried to conceive nonetheless, and all of the hurdles about going through that process at that age abound. You can read about it, but Sarah comes up with an idea. Lost of hope, she comes up with an idea. She says, time is running out. We're supposed to have this promised baby who's supposed to be the first in a long lineage of greatness. You know what, Abraham? You can conceive with my handmaiden. So Abraham's like, okay. And they go, and Hagar conceives a child. And it creates all kinds of trouble for everyone involved. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, I would never. You're probably looking at your spouse like that was a test, homeboy. You ain't, you ain't jumping in nothing else but these. But church, if we're being honest, we do this. We do do this every single day. We take the calling of God, the prompting of God to trust him, to follow him, to be obedient to him. We take the promises of God and we do it in our own way as if God needs our help. We make the promises come true. We see what God calls us to do, the actions he calls us to to, to take, and we think We're pleasing him by modifying it or making it more palatable or changing up the details and keeping our subjective core. But we're not. We're not trusting. We're not obeying. We want the promise more than we want the process. But it's the process where God changes us, where God meets with us. It's in the wrestle with impossibility, the wrestle with knowing what God has said and surrendering your ideas about how that should go, where deep transformation, deep sanctification takes place. And let this show you, family, that God does not need our help in accomplishing his plans. We must Learn to trust him totally. The invitation to obedience is not God depending on you. No, 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 no. The invitation to sacrificial, worshipful obedience is God choosing the means by which he will transform you. It's not that he needs your help or mine. It's not that things won't come to pass if we don't. It's that God is inviting you to labor with him in ways that will benefit you. Think of, think, of, think of how you ask your children to grab the step stool and do the dishes with you. It's not that you need them to do it. It's not that if they don't, It won't get done, surely you're capable. It's not dependent on them doing it right, doing it wrong, or not doing it at all. You're in control. But it's that you know this skill, this discipline grows them, matures them, adds to their skills and ways and ability to serve others and serve themselves well. You see what I'm saying? God comes back to Abraham and Sarah and tells them, this is not what I asked you to do. The promise was for you, Sarah, to carry Abraham's seed and for you to carry that child, not get a baby by any means necessary. And then God uses them both to defy science, to defy anatomy. To defy what was common knowledge at the time. And the baby is conceived. Sarah in her old age with a baby's bump. The day comes when that baby boy, God's gift, his promised child to them has finally arrived. But now what does God have planned for Abraham? What does God have planned for Isaac? This new addition to their family. Well, we see just before our text, if you look at the headlines before, that they are living as aliens, as immigrants in the Philistine land. But the Lord had favored them. Abraham's tribe grew in number and size and resources, so much so that the leader of the Philistine land made a treaty with Abraham that they would remain loyal to each other. This was a kind of promotion moving from alien to something closer To citizen. And this is where we meet the focus, our text, where we meet our text this morning. So I want to title our time in the following verses, the peak of worship, the peak of worship. God's going to ask Abraham to go up to the mountain to worship him. But what Abraham experiences there on that mountain is not all that it seems. I have two points with subpoints in each, but I'll give you the two points now. Abraham's obedience and God's response, a divine response. It is my hope that we would see that the peaks of life are not always great and glorious in ways that we expect them to be. Sometimes peaks can be a place where the divine testing of your faith take place. Which lead you to a deeper worship of God. If you are able, could you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And then would you pray for me as I pray for you, as together we hear what thus saith the Lord. Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So both of them went together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Oh, God, we come to your house to be with your people. May your glory be revealed in the proclamation of your word. May your son be more beautiful in the hearing of your word. May your bride, we, the church, be edified in the digestion of your word. Father, would you gift me as the preacher with clarity of speech and thought, and would you gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors? In Christ Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last weekend, uh, my family and I, we had the privilege and pleasure uh, to go on our first family vacation. Uh, Thank you. It's been 10 years. Um, uh, We went to stay with a couple of friends of ours in Los Angeles, California. It was all of our first times there, and I mean, quite honestly, it was beautiful. Um, We had so much fun, such a great time. But one of the highlights for me was going to the Griffith Observatory. If you don't know about it, it's kind of a space museum. I don't know. But it sits on the southern slope of Mount Hollywood among the Santa Monica Mountains. It's not placed on a hill. It is high up there. The view is completely open. The building is built in such a way where you can catch a view just anywhere you look. And from it, you can see the entire LA basin, the surrounding mountains, even the Pacific Ocean. Inside the observatory, which is completely free by the way. So if you're ever going there, that's a free trip. They have many different displays teaching you about the Earth's orbit, the moon's orbit, the sun, how they all affect things in our world like time zones and seasons and tides. They have a planetary display, a huge solar map where scientists track every comet, star and constellations, real meteorites that you can touch. It's awesome. Things like this are usually a fun way to both test your knowledge and learn something new. We all left that mountaintop feeling tried, tested, and learned. Which then made our hearts be left in wonder by a God who made all that we saw there. And how delicate he holds all things together. Delicate. Delicate. I share this with you because what my family and I experienced on that mountaintop, the challenge of what we know, the knowledge of what we don't, is in a very small way, very small, similar to what we just read in Abraham and Isaac's experience. On the mountain, Abraham and Isaac were tried, tested, and learned, and it filled their hearts with knowledge, with worship. But let's not ignore the elephant in the room. God just asked Abraham to do what now? This is not about worship. This is a horror story. That's what you might think. But it's in verse 1. In those opening words, as we read, we see God comfort us with an embrace and a kiss like a father does his child when they're scared by what they see. Look at verse 1. He says, After these things, that, that's everything I mentioned before. That's the moving, that's the Hagar debacle, entanglement. Uh, that's about the treaty with the Philistines. But, but here it is. Here's, here's the affection. God tested Abraham. How scary, how painful it would be to read the rest of this chapter for the first time without any knowledge that everything was just a test. Once we acknowledge God in the room, all things Become less scary to us. These three words provide not just the affection of God to let us know that everything's going to be okay, but the knowledge of God to know that our faith in him grows by him testing us. I know that's not your neatly tied up church message. I know you might be thinking, oh, well, just this is the Old Testament. Doesn't Jesus fulfill all of that so we won't be tested anymore? Well, friend, we'll talk about Jesus in just a second. But the other part of that answer is no. Jesus tested the disciples all the time. Most severely, he tested them with his death. Did you not read the gospel? They abandoned him because they thought he really died. They did not listen to all of the lessons he taught them over three years. They not only were fearful, mourning, grieving that their friend had died, they're grieving the loss of three years of their life. They're not getting back. You think all of Paul's woes were strictly governmental and societal oppression? No. His faith was tested. And he says, so that his joy may be made complete, so that he could finish the race well. Because God who began a good work in him will see it to completion. God tests our faith. And oftentimes, the tests are painful. In those tests, our faith in him is stretched and it grows. In God's call to Abraham in verse 2, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him up on the mountain. In this, Abraham's test, would, Abraham's faith would be tested and subsequently stretched to the utter limit. Family, no matter what stage you're in, in your walk with God, whether you were just recently baptized or you've been in the game 75 years, the only way to increase your faith in God is to obediently exercise your faith in him. Trust God with all you can and you'll find that he will give you much more than you ever expected. And then you will begin to see that you can even trust him better than you did last time. Notice, That Abraham's greatest faith test came after previous tests and previous blessings. His faith was tested when he was called to move and he passed that test. There was a spiritual elevation there. He was tested to trust God when he asked he and Sarah to conceive a child and he was blessed with a promised child, a miracle baby. He was blessed with the promise that he would be the father of a great nation, that the Messiah himself would come from his lineage. These are significant blessings on the heels and on the heels of these things. God tests him again in the greatest way. Abraham is before this metaphorically on the mountaintop of life. All things are going great. He's close with God. His family is healthy and growing. His tribe is respected so much so that the surrounding government leaders of the land acknowledge them and give them more rank. And that's where God calls him to a literal mountain to be tested. I want to be clear about the nature of testing. There are many tests and trials you will go through. And we'll see some of them as we talk about the valley next week. But I want to be clear. Some tests and trials you go through in this life are a direct result of your own sin. Some tests and trials you experience. Are from the crossfires of spiritual warfare. Some tests and trials are a direct result of the sinful and broken condition of our world and our humanity. However, this test is none of those things. I like what H.B. Charles says about knowing the difference. He says, if you ever have to wonder in your life, what is God doing? That is likely an indicator that the current test you're going through is a growth test like Abraham's what is God doing? Because, I mean, you you heard me before. God had already made clear to Abraham that the promised nations that God would make Abraham the father of would come through Isaac. Isaac is supposed to be the firstborn of a long-lasting legacy that would include King David and Jesus. So why would God say now to offer him up? God, what are you doing? This brings me to my first point, Abraham's obedience. There's three aspects, three types of obedience we see in this that I want us to learn from. First, there's an initial obedience. It's almost shocking How the text moves us from the contents of this difficult test to Abraham's response. Look at verse three. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and went to the place that God had told him to go. So Abraham wakes up early in the morning and prepares just as God told him to. But notice. He's not unfazed. Sorrow and grief have indeed clouded his mind. What Abraham does here and the order in which he does it doesn't make any sense. I like what Gordon Wenham points out in his commentary. He says to first saddle the donkey before cutting the wood is illogical. It's in this small detail that we can see this man of great discipline. This great leader of this great tribe, this renowned man of the land is losing it a bit. He's dried himself before taking a shower. He's ironed his clothes before washing them. He's rinsed his mouth before brushing his teeth. What he has to do on that mountaintop has certainly altered his mind he goes with Isaac and two other servants on a three-day journey for where they need to go and just before they get there in verse five he tells the servants wait here the boy and I are gonna go worship and then come back now Abraham could have told this to his servants so as to not frighten them right because he certainly didn't tell Sarah what was gonna happen which is probably wise But that's not what I think happened here. I'm I'm, going to give you me. This This is me. I've learned that when my fear, when my anxiety, when my worry has overcome my ability to trust God, I just need a little time to calm down. not get answers, calm down. See, it's as if on this three-day journey, Abraham has settled himself a little bit. It's as if an increase of faith has replaced the great sorrow. In other words, he tells the two servants, I don't know how. I'm not even, I don't even know for sure, but I'm gonna do what I'm supposed to do And me and the boy are coming back to you. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense, but that's what's gonna happen. Family, what you need to settle your anxiousness, what you need to settle your worry, what you need to settle your grief is not clearer knowledge of the situation, it's not clarity on the way forward it's trust that God will come through for you it's a trust that no matter what happens God's gonna do what he said he's gonna do you're not hearing me when things don't make sense when the money ain't adding up when anxiety and depression whisper the strongest and deadliest of lies what you need is not first to make things make sense. What you need is not the money to make it happen. What you need is not clarity to see through the fog. All of those things do serve the issue. Hear me, they help. But they don't serve your heart. Those are not the things that grow you. What you need more than all of that is a faith that God will deliver. What you need more than all of those things is for God to be exactly who he said he is. To do with you exactly what he said he's going to do. What you need, what's going to grow you is a faith in God's promises And plans of faith in his word for who feeds the birds in the air or clothes the grass with lilies, God will provide. continual obedience we see as we continue reading we witness Abraham's continual obedience his initial obedience to prepare despite his heart's anguish did not deter him from continuing to be obedient by making the travel and ascending the mountain in verse 6 Abraham ascends with Isaac Isaac carrying the wood and Abraham the fire and knife Isaac breaks the silence he says hey dad we got everything but the sheep for the sacrifice what's up with that But Abraham doesn't lie. He speaks in faith to his son. God will provide for our needs. Ah, oh, but notice Isaac here, family. In Isaac's confusion, he inquires, and his father's answer doesn't make any logical sense, but Isaac follows obediently still. It's not just Abraham's continual obedience where to note here, but Isaac's also. He continues up that mountain, trusting his father's words, despite having clarity on the situation. I wish I had more time to explore all the layers of application in this text. But in this, I feel a particular personal conviction. I'll give you. This is me again. I read this and I ask myself two questions. Possibly a third. First, do I trust God when things don't make sense? And second, do my children trust me when I ask them to do things that don't make sense to them? And if the answer is no, and usually it is, how have I led in a way that hasn't allowed room for Isaac did not have a hint of what was coming. Nothing in this moment made sense. Right? Why why not bring the servants to worship with us? Why don't we have the animal needed for the sacrifice? Why is my dad so quiet? Why did we go all the way over here to worship God? Why isn't my mom here? Why didn't we tell her anything? Nothing makes sense except faith. I trust my father. In Isaac lies the faith of his father. Oh, man. Gospel parenting is not merely the handing off of knowledge. It's not merely the handing off of skills. It's not just the emotional health and personal awareness of self and worth. More importantly than any of those things is the reality that our job is to hand off the spiritual. Oh, I wish I had time to get into this. Isaac and Abraham both exercise the same great faith. When Isaac asks, where's the lamb to be slain for worship? Abraham says, don't worry, God will provide it. Isaac's faith growing test here is to look and learn from his father's faith in God. Dad, where is the thing we lack? Don't worry, son. God will provide. John Calvin comments on Abraham's reply to Isaac here like this. This example is for our imitation. In such moments... The only remedy is to leave the event to God in order that he may open a way for us when there is none. We pay him the highest honor when in affairs of perplexity, we nevertheless entirely acquiesce to his providence. That's a mean quote. In other words, church, when nothing makes sense, The only sensible things to do are to trust God and remain obedient to him. As we continue. We see ultimate obedience at work. In verse nine, they reach the place where they are to worship, the the place where worship will commence. And so they prepare the place for worship. Adam, uh, Abraham creates the altar. He he lays the wood down in a specific order and the way that it should go, and then he binds his son hands and foot to the altar. You have to realize the small details in this story. Abraham is old. He is 95 at this moment. Some of us won't live that long. Notice, it was Isaac who carried the wood all the way up the mountain. In order for Abraham to bind Isaac, Isaac must have consented. He could have easily, understand me, he could have easily, we're not talking about two two professional boxers in the boxing ring and we go, wow, one, one is a little bit better than the other. No, 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 no. That's not what's happening here. Isaac could have easily overpowered and outmaneuvered his father. Isaac decides in this moment to obey his father, whatever the cost, just as his father decided to obey God, whatever the cost. This shows us that the father's faith is alive in the son. I wish y'all loved this story. Abraham now stands over his son, knife in hand, trembling. Horribly trembling sweat coming down his faith. He's unable to speak. He closes his eyes. He raises his hands. He holds his breath, telling himself to bring his hand down hard to make the sacrificial cut that would wet the wood with his son's blood. Pause. This is real faith. We don't like it. I'm sorry to give you this news, but this is faith that produces amazing works in the beholder. Faith ain't real because you say it is. Your faith ain't real because you declare it to be so. No, faith without works is dead. Abraham's faith here is genuine faith that works. Faith that is proven by obedience. Faith is proven by your willful submission to the will of God. Listen to what James, the brother of Jesus, says in his book, James chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. You see that faith was active along with his works. He's talking about Abraham in this moment. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and God called him friend. Come back to the scene with me. I want to close. Three kinds of divine responses divine intervention, divine provision, divine promise. Abraham is about to strike down his son, shaking, breath held sweating he hears a voice call out to him Abraham and the tension immediately releases here I am he says relief present throughout all his body do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son your only son from me who is this angel That speaks in such a way. Look at the phraseology he uses. We heard God speak to Abraham before. But this angel speaks as though he is both from God and is God simultaneously. I know you fear God. From God, right? And did not withhold your son from me. This angel of the Lord talking to Abraham is what theologians call a Christophany. Stay with me. This is a word to tell us that this angel of the Lord was just was not just some angel. It wasn't Gabriel or Michael. It wasn't a seraphim or one of those living creatures with like eight heads. No, this was Jesus speaking. The second person of the Trinity in his pre-incarnate form. It was Jesus before he was born in Bethlehem. Jesus shows up on Mount Moriah in this moment where a father put his son on wood to offer him up as a sacrifice. Abraham looks up from his saved son's person and sees divine provision. Abraham is given a lamb to be slain instead of his son. Oh, I'll help you out. What did Abraham tell the young servants in verse 5? He told them, we're going to the mountaintop to worship. And he put the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's back. To carry it up the hill. The key word in all of this is burnt offering or burnt sacrifice. This was a worship of atonement practice. For your sins against God, God's people would offer to God a pure animal on a wooden altar. Slain to be burnt up totally. And then they would worship God for his acceptance of this sacrifice for their transgressions and sins. So when Abraham says he's going to go worship, this means that Abraham was going up to that mountain to set up the altar, bind his son to it, strike him down, burn him up as an offering for atonement. That means... That though he's offering up his son and not one of his many sheep, the substance of the action never changed in Abraham's mind. It was worship when he gives his sheep and it will be worship when he gives his son. Even though it would cost him infinitely more to give his son instead of his sheep, one thing in Abraham's mind has not changed. God is worthy of it all. Oswald Chambers puts it this way. Worship is giving God the best that he has given you. Be careful what you do to the best you have. Whenever you get a blessing from God, give it back to him as a love gift. Is this not what Abraham intends to do? Isaac was God's gift to Abraham. And Abraham is painfully willing to give him back to God. But even so, what Abraham experienced was a divine foreshadowing of a divine promise. Just as Abraham orders Isaac to carry that wood up the mountain, so did Jesus take a wood up a hill at his father's request. Just as Abraham laid his son on the wood, so would God lay his son on the wood. But thankfully, There was no ram for God. No, 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 don't get caught up there. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is stated in verse 12. God never wanted to make Abraham kill Isaac. There was always going to be a ram provided. God does not change his mind based on your decisions. That was always going to happen. The point of the text, the point for Abraham was the rejection was the reflection sorry on the object of his affections the object of his worship god didn't want isaac's life he wanted abraham's heart abraham learned on that mountain that the gifts god gives can't get in the way of our relationship with him i'm not saying You can't hold things in high esteem, your children, your spouse, your siblings, and so on. But what God wants for you is to hold these things with open hands because they don't belong to you. They belong to him. Abraham could have held tightly to Isaac and told God, no, you can't have him. You promised him to me. You can't take him. He's mine. But he did not He painfully, excruciatingly, was willing to give Isaac up if that meant if that meant maintaining obedience notice this family god provided at the place of obedience without going to the mountain abraham would have never saw the ram and without the testing of his face of his faith fixating the object of his affections He would only ever, ever able to have seen the ram. Stay with me. The narrator of the story tells us in verse 13 to behold. Not see. Behold. Behold is a worship term. It's a word we use to address our affection and attention. The narrator of this story says that Abraham lifted his head and behold, marvel, take in, find all in the ram provided. Many, many, many years later, there was another narrator. He was called the voice crying in the wilderness. And the incarnate Christ, God wrapped in human flesh, came to him. And when he did, he declared to his Hearers, a similar thing. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I want to tell you, family, that the peak of worship is where provision meets obedience. Surely God provides for all your needs, just as he did Adam in the garden, just as he did Noah on that boat, just as he did Abraham on that mountain, just as he did Joseph in Egypt. Just as he did Moses before that sea, just as he did Israel in the wilderness, and on and on and on we see examples of God providing for his people. And alone, that alone reiterates his worthiness to be praised. But there is one place of significance more than any of those, and it wasn't on a mountain but on a hill, where Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, It was there where the lamb was slain for you and I. It was there where the ultimate sacrifice was made on our behalf. So now we don't see him, we behold him. Behold the ram provided for us. And we worship he who is worthy, worthy of our obedience, worthy of all our Isaacs. Since he provided the cross, salvation is ours. Redemption is ours. Faith is ours. And when that faith is tested, either in the valley or on the mountain, we can say, worthy is the lamb who is slain. Worthy is the king who conquered the grave. Worthy is Christ. Stand with me in worship.